0: So I received an email a while back from a listener to the podcast saying that she liked the podcast and she coincidentally was also a student at Antioch in my program, the Couple and Family Therapy program, the Masters in Marriage and Family Therapy. And she said she wanted to meet up and chat, and so she came to my office at Antioch, and we talked for a long time. I remember thinking, "Us oh, it's probably 15 minutes, but I think we talked for like an hour or something. Mm-hmm. And I found her to be fascinating because she has a lot of knowledge about depression, and I thought that we don't talk enough about depression in particularly our culture, but also within the counseling and, and therapy profession. I think there are a lot of misconceptions out there, even among clinicians, and I thought I would have her on the show to dispel those myths and to to educate people about depression once and for all. So why don't you introduce yourself to the listeners?
1: Hi, my name is O'Donnie, and like Crick said, I'm currently at Antioch, just started my second year.
0: How do you like it so far?
1: I love it. I think it's great. It feels like home to me. Okay. Yeah, it's great.
0: So what can you tell us about depression that might not be understood by the general public and clinicians?
1: One thing that is a challenge is trying to describe the experience of depression to someone who doesn't know it firsthand or even hasn't, you know, someone who actually lives with someone with depression or knows them like that, it's even difficult to describe the experience of it.
0: Right, right. Because a lot of people I would just imagine, based on what I've heard other people say, and based on my own mind before I was a clinician, that when you're depressed, you're, I don't know, just slightly sad or you're temporarily a little down or something, you know, because everyone, even if you haven't had what we might call clinical depression, has had a bad mood sort of day where you're just feeling the blahs, you know, Mm -hmm. you have a case of the Mondays or something. Sure. Whereas clinicians uh, and people that have been through depression understand that it's much deeper than that, much more pervasive and has much more of a social impact, Mm -hmm. right?
1: What's most difficult to describe? And for people to understand is kind of the day-to-day experience of someone who's depressed. It's not a black and white sort of experience. You know, obviously someone who has depression doesn't always have it. But when they the symptoms aren't there, it doesn't mean that they totally feel okay all the time. The struggle that it can be at times of just getting through a day. I was telling you when I met up with you, I decided a few years ago to start writing about my experience and started blogging about it because one of the one of the big things that happens that's intertwined with depression is the stigma, a sort of a self-stigma, so feeling a lot of shame, feeling embarrassed or humiliated about how you're feeling within yourself but also feeling that around other people. So that's one big reason why people don't share their experience or don't even want to disclose.
0: Right. So not only does depression create brain circumstances that uh, create thoughts of self Reproachment and what's wrong with me? I totally screwed up that conversation earlier, or I'm a terrible person. No one likes me. I'll never amount to anything. Not only that, but why am I having all those thoughts and feelings? There's something wrong with me that I keep saying such horrible things about me. And if they last for a long period of time, as you're saying, you develop shame around it. And I'm guessing that socially as you start talking about it with your friends, if other people have never experienced depression like that, they might just say, oh, well, just stop thinking about it or just look on the bright side or your life is so good. Why are you thinking that? What's wrong with you? Right. And you quickly learn that you can't get the sort of support from people. I find that a lot of people that are depressed, particularly teenagers, will find friends that are also depressed mm-hmm. because they're, these other people understand them. And that can be wonderful on one hand because you find people that understand you. But on another hand, when you're around depressed people, it can be depressing. And if you're depressed yourself, right, then it can be a double whammy of depression.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think um, depending on where you are, like as a teen developmentally, there's a lot more that you struggle with just because you're trying to like find yourself. So identity is a huge thing. Um, just kind of socially learning how to like operate in the world and interact with people um, that definitely makes the experience that much more difficult for me and also it depends on of course you know your family circumstances is there a lot of communication going on do you feel like or do you have that support do you have parents or caregivers who notice one thing when you know symptoms come up where maybe, you know, Jane isn't looking like herself as much, and she's not doing as well on her homework. And so for me, I grew up in an environment where I went unnoticed. And so my personal experience with depression was very, I was by myself in it, mm. I would say I was kind of marinating in it. Um mm. And so trying to figure out who I was and navigating middle school and high school. And I moved around a lot, so that, of course, added, <laughs> added to all of, the, all of my experiences. But, um, yeah, it's tough as a teen. It's really tough.
0: Let me ask you about the moving around piece, mm-hmm. piece of that. Did that sure. contribute to the Depression, do you think?
1: Definitely. How so? Definitely. I went to a different school every year of high school in three different countries, so, yeah, it was really difficult just feeling like I belonged anywhere, you know, having to make friends and just even feeling settled within myself. Um, and, of course, you know, going from one culture to the next, it kind of puts a, little, a different spin on things.
0: So not only difficulty adjusting mm-hmm. to a culture, right, to different people. hmm but also, I'm guessing, a loss of the friends that you had. Yeah. Right? Over the year, you would have developed relationships with people, or at least a sense of security in the place that you're at. Yeah. And then just to lose that. Right. So abruptly, and then, and then have to start all over again. Yeah. Did that affect you as well?
1: Yeah. I mean, I feel like I was sort of on shaky ground throughout my high school years. I probably did not become as close to people or didn't make myself as vulnerable as available to people as I would have because of it. Enhancing that isolation um, just kind of kept me at bay.
0: Right. So you were mentioning that that being isolated in your family and among your peers Mm
1: -hmm.
0: might have made your depression worse. Is that what you're saying?
1: I think it. Yeah, I think it added. It didn't help. Yeah, it definitely made it worse
0: because maybe this is your experience. I don't know. But with with other people and with myself, when I get in a bad mood, when I am around people, even if we're not talking about anything important, Mm -hmm. somehow it mitigates the mood issue Somehow, it can make it worse, too, depending on what's happening socially but right, but for people that I talk to, uh it seems as though even just hanging out and watching t v with somebody somehow makes the depression go down a little bit is that Is that what you're talking about?
1: I think just establishing the establishing relationships that bring you to those times of just hanging out and watching t v with people for me i experienced a lot of anxiety as well a lot of social anxiety so even being in the presence of other people was exhausting and difficult because i had these this constant like negative thinking of like am i even sitting correctly like do i have a weird look on my face do i look normal you know should i say something here was that stupid you know so it was just this constant surveillance
0: right and for many people they don't realize That depression and anxiety that you're – of the type you're talking about often go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. That they find a lot of people have both depression and the sort of general or social anxiety that that you're talking about. Yeah. And often medications will help reduce both the anxiety and the the depression. So some people think it might even be a similar process in the brain, that it's not two disorders but one Mm. that just – manifests as both anxiety and depression. You Mm -hmm. know
1: what I mean? Yeah, Yeah, I believe it.
0: So that would get depressing to hang out with people and then be very worried about things and have the social interaction not be very fun and very tiresome. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then to go home and think, well, that was not very fun for me. Yeah. (laughs) And what's wrong with me? How come I can't just hang out? And when you're nervous, then you tend to screw things up socially so to speak Mm -hmm. you know you tend to become more awkward tend more awkward (laughs) right and then you realize that you're being awkward and people tend to shy away from awkward people not always and then that can make you feel bad about yourself and then it's like well what's the point socializing because i'm just gonna be awkward and so is it's too
1: difficult and yeah yeah and you know high schoolers teenagers can be so mean, <laughs> you know? <Agreed>. Yes. <laughs> so mean. Yeah.
0: And, and one of the things that, that of the myths that I hear about depression and, and anxiety for, for, for people that have depression and anxiety, they don't need to be told this, but, but for the population that doesn't, they, the notion often that I, Get a little upset about is that? Well, just stop thinking those thoughts. Mm -hmm. Don't you realize that you're doing that to yourself? Just stop. Right. If the person could stop, they would. Right. Why would they want to think negatively about themselves? Why would they want to worry about social interactions so much? Yeah. No one wants that. It's a it's a pervasive. Intrusive thought that dominates the mind and colors everything that you see. It's not just that you have this tiny thought like, Oh, yeah, I'm a, I'm not very, I'm not a very good person. No one likes me. It's, it, it's not just a tiny little thought. It's, it's a, it's a booming thought in your mind and you believe it with your, mind body and soul mm-hmm. that you are not a good person right. and that you're never going to be a good person mm-hmm. and why try because right. you always fail and you're you're never going to amount to you know just and there's various different manifestations of these of these intrusive thoughts about mm-hmm. about things I mean I'm saying intrusive but it's it's just a dominating rumination and simply saying to them stop thinking it is ignoring the fact that they're really trying to not think it but right. it's hard not to
1: right and that if it were a choice hey i would have gotten rid of these thoughts a long time ago you know
0: right and Often the, the way that I see it is it's like trying to convince someone that the sky is red instead of blue, mm-hmm. you know, because the depressed person is looking up at the sky, you know, and, and seeing blue and you're saying, no, that's it's red. And when you're talking to them, you're, you're saying your life is good and you don't have to uh, think those bad thoughts about yourself. They believe that it's true that they're a bad person. That mm-hmm. It's not. It's not just a question. Maybe I'm a bad person. They believe. They feel that it's true that they're a bad person. And, and even if you go down the line and say all the good things about them, right? The pervasiveness of the depression makes it so that even against evidence, they will still believe that they're a bad person.
1: Yeah, I mean, in the depths of it, yes. You know, like I was saying earlier, they're kind of different shades of gray. We'll say. That's usually the color I, I talk about when I talk about depression, because, yes, there are times and there have been times where I have felt like I've just been saturated in negativity and, you know, um, just the over just generalizing my life of like, I'm a failure. I'm inept. I will always feel this way. There's a lot of absolutes when you're in the midst of that kind of thinking. But there also are times and I still do experience times like these where it's I can still function daily um, and the thoughts will feel intrusive um, because usually now nowadays, luckily through therapy and 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 medication and lots of work, um, I'm able to be here in the moment, not be like stuck in that negative thinking. But every now and then I'll get an intrusive thought of negativity of like you know, oh, you're so childish or wow, that was really irresponsible, you know, and then the the dangerous tumbleweed of negativity can start.
0: So what about the therapy helped you?
1: Firstly, continuing to go to therapy. (laughs) That's something that took me a while. I went to a few different therapists and it wasn't easy for me to maintain, to be a good client, I'll say good in quotes, just maintaining therapeutic work. That was really difficult for me.
0: Meaning that it was hard to motivate to go to therapy or you didn't like your therapist or you didn't think it was going to work? or.
1: Um, I think it was kind of a jumble of all those things. Also, when I started on medication, I'd start feeling better. And so on the opposite end of feeling like you're stuck in a dark cloud and everything's always going to suck forever and ever, <laughs> you know, when you're feeling better, you can start to feel like, hey, life is good and I'm not going to fall down there again, you know, so it can also go in the opposite direction.
0: How would the therapy work?
1: So I, I've been taking a class in cognitive behavioral therapy. So that's what first comes to, not, to mind. But Kim's class, Jennifer,
0: individual therapy and in the individual therapy, yeah. Okay.
1: I was like, why isn't it just called CPT? But yeah. I've been thinking a lot about how thoughts, emotions, feelings, physical feelings, also and behaviors, are all intertwined. And so in therapy, it was really helpful to kind of externalize my thoughts. Have the therapist draw out and have me speak aloud, which I feel like is a completely different process than thinking to yourself. Um, you know, the thoughts that I was having, um, sort of showing me evidence of, you know, it's not as bad as you, you're perceiving, or you have been doing things that, you know, taking steps to achieve goals that you have. Um, so I think the therapy just having that place and that person to walk you through your brain and out of your brain um, was really helpful and and practicing a sort of mindfulness so that when you're not with the, th- the therapist in the office, that you can take that sort of thinking with you throughout your day.
0: Your therapist, I'm guessing, built a good relationship with you because you're talking about some difficult things. Yes. Yeah, so mm-hmm. you felt like your therapist cared and yeah Um, and had your back so to speak
1: yeah it actually it took a little while to get there how long oh gosh years few years
0: for you to feel that way with that therapist or with any therapist
1: with any therapist just being vulnerable Even in therapy, when I first started for the first few years, I was really self-conscious about what I said to my therapist and my therapist judging me also.
0: Was that because the therapist was judging you or just... No,
1: that was just part of my negative thinking. Okay. Like, that's how powerful it can be.
0: Right. That you would have a lens that you see people through Mm -hmm. that, well, I judge myself, so of course they're judging me. Sure. I mean, I'm a lame person, right? of course, everyone's going to see that if I reveal who I am. Is that, is that what you're talking about?
1: Yeah. And it's not on that, you know, you're not as aware of that thinking process as that, but that's essentially what's going on is, right. yeah.
0: So you built a good relationship over time and then you analyzed your thought process by thinking about the thoughts you had or the cognitions, they say, in cognitive therapy, Yeah, where, you know, a thought like I'm a, I'm a terrible person or um, or I'm I'm never going to amount to anything or something. And because I've never amounted to anything in the past. And in your mind, as you have those thoughts, they're they're not necessarily in a sentence form, right? It's just kind of a notion that pops right. up in your head. And then you immediately feel bad about yourself. Mm-hmm. And then that might lead to you like saying, well, why leave the house? Because or why go to work? Or why try? And so you have this right. thought and then you have this feeling and then you have this behavior, right? Right. Right. And then through therapy, you would analyze that process, and the therapist would walk you through it. And you'd say, "Well, I guess if I was to put in a sentence, I was mm-hmm. thinking I'm never going to amount to anything." Okay, well, then what did you feel after you had that thought? Well, I felt down. I felt like the my the floor was falling out from under me, from underneath me. And then what did you do with that? Well, I just I decided not to go to the interview because I figured I wasn't going to amount to anything, Right. or I didn't go out on that date, or I didn't. Apply yeah. for school or whatever.
1: Or I didn't want to deal with the feelings of anxiety that I know I'm going to feel if I go do XYZ. Right. Yeah.
0: Because what's the point, right? Right. And then the therapist says, okay, so we've got the pattern down. And just that alone for some people can be curative because they're like, wow, that's pretty interesting that Mm -hmm. I do that to myself, you know? Mm -hmm. What if I change that initial thought? I wouldn't feel so down and then I might actually do something in in the end and might actually have a success and then that'll lead to me having different kinds of thoughts like, boy, I'm good at things. So not only that, just awareness of putting it into words, but also with your therapist, I'm guessing, going over those thoughts and, and mm-hmm. changing them and going over evidence. Mm-hmm. Let's look at the evidence. Are you that bad of a person? That I mean, let's let's look at this. And, mm-hmm. and this is one of my favorite conversations to have with clients because it's so easy to do. Mm-hmm. Because people in general, even if they're not depressed, in general, the shame that people have, at least among the clients that I talk to, is so unjustified. Mm-hmm. The thing that I like to say is, Have you ever killed a puppy on on purpose? They'll be like, no. And I'll say like, well, if you did, you should be ashamed of that because that's a terrible thing to do. And they're like, well, I've never done that. Okay, have you ever, you know, I don't know, swung a bat around when there's a bunch of kids around and like accidentally hit one in the head? Mm -hmm. No, I've never done that. Well, if you did, you should be ashamed of that because you did something that put a lot of people in danger. You should absolutely judge yourself and say... Look, and you should look at yourself in the mirror and say, "Why was I doing that?" So, what are you ashamed about? And they'll be like, "Well, I, I I only got a 3.0 in college." It's that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff, you know. It's like, okay, so let's match up 3.0 in college to killing a puppy. Right? Okay. There's nothing to be ashamed about about getting a 3.0 in Mm -hmm. in college. Or never going to college at all, or having said something stupid at a party. I mean, there's nothing ashamed. You shouldn't be ashamed of that. You should maybe cringe at yourself or something, or (laughs) or laugh at yourself, or say, I'm human and normal because we all make mistakes. Right. But you shouldn't be ashamed of that. I'll tell you what, you know, because the thing that a lot of therapists do is... They give off this vibe that you should never be ashamed of anything. You know, mm-hmm. when clients are, you know, present shame, they say, oh, you should get rid of that shame. And I, I try to match that up with there are things you should be ashamed of. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. If you murder someone in cold blood, you should be ashamed of that. I'm sorry. Yeah. That's, that's on you and, and you should be ashamed of that. <laughs> uh, so I, I like to give, you know, the examples of like, there are appropriate places for shame. But the things you're shaming yourself for are really not even close to that. Yeah. So Yeah. So you probably had conversations along those lines with your therapist too, right?
1: Yeah. Putting things into perspective. You know, there have been a lot of times when I'm not necessarily shaming myself, but saying like, oh, I've been wanting to go back to school and I'm in this job that I hate. And, you know, I've been bitching about it for a while, but I'm never going to get out of this situation. And... You know, and then my therapist will say, well, you are volunteering at the crisis line, right? You know, and I'm like, oh, yeah. Okay. So how many prereqs have you taken in the past few years to apply for school? And then I start going, okay, (laughs) you know, like, okay, you're right. You're right. All right. You know, so. So so
0: what's that like from the client's perspective? Because. You know, the way you describe it, there's a there's a um, gotcha element to it, yes. you know, and, and I could imagine from your side, it's like, it's a nice thought. It's like, oh, you're pointing out a good perspective to me that's helpful and makes me actually feel a little better. Right. But at the same time, it's like,
1: I don't totally believe you yeah, or me
0: or, or something, you know, it, it's sort yeah. of a conflict, you know, yeah. that's why you need that good relationship because the therapist is essentially saying what you're thinking is not good or you right. should change it or something like how is that yeah. on
1: your side? Well it's interesting because, you know, as the my years of therapy have gone by, they they definitely feel more like gotcha moments. You know, in the beginning, um It was a lot more difficult for me to believe or even, you know, if my therapist was giving me this evidence that like, actually, you are you are working towards something that you want to do. I would still internally be thinking to myself like, yeah, but, you know, a lot of yeah, buts. Um,
0: Right. Because the yeah, but is telling someone that the sky is red. It's like, mm -hmm. well, yeah, but you you don't (laughs) you don't understand the sky is blue. Right. I know you like to think of the sky as being red therapist you know that's your rosy little world but you don't get it the sky is blue and i know it's blue (laughs) yeah because it's been blue my whole life and so
1: yeah one thing that i like to share with people and actually just shared with my individual therapy class one of the most powerful things that a therapist has shared with me and it was at a time when i was having a lot of difficulty with anxiety and would have panic attacks and was really paranoid about leaving my house. And so I stayed at home a lot in my PJs. And when I, the few times I'd go out driving, I would be really worried about going under overpasses. You know, I'm like, there's going to be an earthquake right when I'm driving under it, you know. And another thing that was really difficult to experience while I was driving was just simply sitting at a stoplight. You know, I would feel like everybody's eyes staring at me, judging me through the windows, you know, and the windshield. And so my therapist at the time was like, okay, so when thing when that happens, when things like that happen, I just want you to notice that you're thinking that. And at the time, I was like, well, of course I know it." You know, it's like, I just told you that that happened. So, of course I know. And I'm like, okay, whatever. But after... I don't know how long it took for me to kind of get it. But after a while, like, that was such a powerful exercise for me to practice because eventually one day I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm thinking that. And then it became a choice of, like, this is not a thought that I need to be having. And it's not really a realistic one. And right. it's not a part of me, you know.
0: Right. So, by being mindful... And reflective upon yourself, you are acknowledging an observing ego, we call it in psychodynamic therapy. You're observing the self, and by extension, you're externalizing Mm -hmm. the thought that you're having in the moment.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: You're saying, It's not me, because if you're observing you, it's a weird thing, and there's lots of philosophy about consciousness and like the parts of yourself, but if you're sitting there at the stop sign and you're in the midst of feeling as though everyone's judging you and then you stop and then observe that quote unquote from the outside suddenly now that notion that everyone's judging you is now not you. Right. You're observing. It's like looking at your foot that's on fire or something mm-hmm. it's like i'm not on fire my foot's on fire but wait <laughs> m- i am my foot but you know <laughs> what i mean it's it's far enough away from you that you're like it's it's not really me right it, you know you're looking at it and just just by your therapist astutely working with you in that way and just say just just observe it that alone can dispel it mm-hmm. as as you're saying yeah so one of the things that you sent me was a interesting documentary about depression it's like an hour long Mm -hmm. what's the title of it
1: oh gosh i knew you were gonna ask me that
0: yeah do you know who did it like so people could google it or anything
1: it's on youtube it's like
0: an hour long search for hour long depression documentaries (laughs) on on youtube because neither of us remember anything about it which is fine um (laughs) it's really good it's really good and it has a lot of it's primarily interviews with people that have depression and their family members their mm-hmm. parents and their spouses and maybe their children. Mm-hmm. And what I thought was really great about the documentary is even just watching a little bit of it, you get a really good feel for what it's like to have ongoing deep depression for a long period of time.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You also get to see what the spouses, what it's like for the to be a spouse. You know, there's this one husband uh, of a wife who has depression. They have kids together and They're probably like around 40 years old or something. And he's talking about how in the beginning of their relationship, the wife, she's talking and she's saying, well, at that point, I felt like my life was wrong Mm -hmm. and that it wasn't right. There's something wrong with me and there's something wrong with my life. And so I thought maybe it's the person I decided to marry and maybe I need to be with someone else. Right. Right and so I blamed my husband for a lot of things and it caused all sorts of problems and we have fights about it but over time I've come to realize that it's not my husband and that he's actually a, a great support for me and that if I cultivate a good relationship with him it's actually it actually helps my depression even though I'm still depressed. And that's that's another thing about the documentary is is it's not like everyone is suddenly not depressed. I mean it's it's more like how can we manage our depression as best as we can.
1: Yeah, it's very it gives a very realistic view from different vantage points. Right.
0: If you're going to have depression how can you live with it?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then the husband is saying, yeah, at first she was blaming me for things and I didn't know what to do and I was trying to help her and now she doesn't blame me anymore, but I still see her depressed a lot and, and really care about her. And so I thought that was a really powerful part of it because I, I see that a lot. I see mm-hmm. it, and it makes sense, right? If you're alone in your depression, and you're, you have all these negative thoughts and negative notions that come up. It makes sense that some of the notions are going to start targeting your, your marriage or your relationship and mm-hmm. your spouse and another thing she said that i thought was common was she thought she needed to move or maybe it was someone else in the documentary i,
1: I think i know who you're talking about she was like maybe i just was living the wrong life and i wanted to escape and just go far away and leave my kids and right you know
0: yeah it was about moving about divorcing about changing one's life. You know, there's something wrong with my life. If I didn't have this life or I didn't live in this place, I won't feel this way anymore, which is a natural Mm -hmm. conclusion and possibly true in some instances. But if you're depressed, your depression follows you. Mm -hmm. So if you divorce, your depression follows you. And if you move to another place, your depression follows you. And I've seen this among clients and people in my personal life, that when they get depressed, they will ruminate on these solutions, you know, it's almost like an evolution to some extent in the brain. It's like, okay, I am I feel terrible today. Let me see if I can change that. I will have a donut. Well, that didn't work. <laughs> Um, I will try to have sex. Well, that didn't work. I'll have a relationship. That didn't work. I'll have kids. That didn't work. And then slowly, you're checking off, you're crossing things off the list. And eventually, you're left with a, with very few things to do, Right. one of which is to divorce, you know, which people don't often do when they wake up in the morning. You know, it's kind of a final thing to do. And the other thing is, is to move far away. Mm-hmm. If I just lived somewhere else, you know, people in France are so happy. And so if I lived in <laughs> they France,
1: really good health care,
0: <laughs> obviously I'll be happy in France. I mean, do you know any French depressed people? I don't. So why is that? You know, so you start to turn to those those solutions. And since you can't just do those willy nilly, they become kind of ongoing fantasy escapes to people who are depressed and mm-hmm. and and. Because they're depressed, then it's hard to take action to actually go through with those things, mm-hmm. and but and so the fixation starts to develop where where for years they think, well, if only I lived in France or if only I was divorced, right? I wouldn't feel this way. And what it does in in my experience for some people is it denies them the actual ability to. Uh, face their depression head on in a way that might actually help them where they are right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe, maybe they want to get divorced. Maybe that's the best answer. Maybe they want to move to France, but it's not likely to be a, you know, a fix, or a magic mm-hmm. bullet. Yeah. And so it becomes this this escape fantasy. I don't know. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah. Um, well, going back to the couple in the documentary, I remember one of the things that the wife said was that she was feeling depressed. And she broke down in the interview when she was like, I didn't even tell my husband, you know, like, my husband, you know, the person who was closest to me. Um, and so that definitely plays into the dynamics of the relationship in terms of, you know, I think her projecting her unhappiness onto her life and her husband. And then probably from her husband's point of view of being like, geez, you know, what's going on? What have I done? Something that he had said was... When they started going to therapy together, he learned about depression and her, ex- her personal experience with it. And that really helped him understand where she was coming from and to be able to stomach things like, I believe she even told him at one point, like, I don't know if I even I've ever loved you or something really, you know, significant like that. But I, you know, through therapy and having that education and knowledge, he was able to see that as something that was a symptom and not how she was actually feeling.
0: Yeah. Can you speak to that in terms of what that is, that if someone's depressed, they might say something like that, that they aren't sure if they ever loved their spouse? I mean, it's a complicated thing, because maybe, yeah. maybe they didn't ever love their spouse. But is is that is that a result of depression or tell me about that?
1: Oh, gosh. I'm trying to think if I've ever said anything that <laughs> that big and deep to anyone.
0: Or even thought it, right?
1: Or thought it. Yeah, that's true. I think also the silence of the depression, not talking about it. I think that when people say things like that, it's kind of just like everything has come to a head and it's more like, this is how much I'm hurting.
0: Right maybe a discussion of what it's like to be in love is in order but it's a complicated thing of course and it's different for many many people but you know when you're when you love someone say you're in a 10 year long relationship and you love your spouse what people will often say when i talk to them about what it's like to feel love for your spouse is that you respect them you want to be with them you have a drive to to kiss them or to tell them stories or to share things with them. You you enjoy your life together, mm-hmm. you like spending time together. Yeah. You laugh at each other's jokes. You can imagine that depression would interfere with all of those things. That that mm-hmm. depression because of its dampening effect on one's mood, you can imagine that the feelings that might normally arise like Oh, I want to reach out and hold his hand or mm-hmm. I want to I want to run home and tell him this story. Right. That you could imagine the state of being depressed might eliminate those kinds of things and therefore the person is thinking, when was the last time I had a love kind of feeling toward my spouse? Mm-hmm. I don't know, like Three years ago, yeah, <laughs> I must not be in love with my spouse, and according to one definition, you could say they aren't in love with their spouse, but according to another definition, their love is being dampened by their mm-hmm. mood, and that they're not capable of loving someone when they are depressed, yeah, I mean that's a strong statement, I might cut that, but <laughs> but but that you know it, it makes it hard to love when you're depressed, sure. Um, some people even say you can't love someone until you love yourself. Right. And if you are so shameful and so down on yourself, it's going to be hard to have the energy and the heart to to love someone else as well, which which you also hear people say. I mm-hmm. I learned to love myself first through depression. I you know, I moved past the depression, I learned to have positive self-regard and and then at that point I could actually begin to give love to other people. Right. So when people are depressed often, they over time learn that people don't want to hear it, Mm -hmm. that when they talk with people about it, as we said earlier, they'll get judgment or they'll get people that minimize it or just say, oh, just look on the bright side of life. Why are you always why are you always so negative all the time? You're so negative. They might hear that a lot. Right. Right. And they realize that it's not helpful. Plus, even that, even if you find a friend or a family member that seems to understand, a lot of times they get wary of listening. And, but even in addition to that, the the depressed person will see themselves as wearisome, even though they're not. This is a conversation I have a lot with clients is I'll say, well, how many People, do you talk? Because, because I actually am a personal believer that everyone, regardless of if, if you are depressed or not, needs to talk with someone once a day mm. in a real way. I am not talking once a week or once a month. I am talking every day. We need to have a sit down with whether it's a connection. Yeah, you are walking around the lake and having just a regular conversation about what happened that day, or even something more intense. But every day. And so, if you feel like there is something wrong with you, and you don't do that then you become even more depressed, right? And so you live in this silence of, well, I can't share this with people. Like I had a client that was depressed pretty much all, or that was suicidal pretty much all the time. Hmm. She had never taken an action. She had never actually had a plan, but she had... Pretty much every day mm-hmm. this thought in her head like, well, you could always just end it all if you killed yourself or you know H- how nice would it be if you were never alive mm-hmm. you, you, you wouldn't suffer anymore that'd, that'd be a good thing and no one would really cares about you anyway. so what's the difference And every day there was there was that thought and she could not share that with other, she felt she couldn't share it with other people because that's a shocking thought to share with someone. Right. that doesn't understand what it's like. If mm-hmm. you shared that thought with the average person, they would either be traumatized or they would be shocked and they might call the police <laughs> right. or they might instantly try to fix it or right. they might say, that, I don't know, it just it creates a lot of anxiety for people that don't know that this is really an ongoing thing and that a lot of people silently have these thoughts. Mm-hmm. And so you learn not to even share it with anybody and then the spouse, like this husband, doesn't even know that their wife is having these thoughts all the time. And to live in that isolation, you could imagine that would put a damper on your feelings of love towards mm-hmm. your spouse, right? The oh, distance yeah. that it creates.
1: Yeah, definitely. I have a great frustration with people who don't understand depression or, you know, it's, it's not people's fault who don't have depression and don't understand it. But I'm just kind of stumped on like how. Besides talking about it and like educating people, I I don't know, I I just that's something that I think about regularly is I don't want to feel like I'm bashing people for not understanding and, you know, damn you, you've never had depression. So you suck, you know? Well,
0: it's kind of like racism or something, right? Yeah. (laughs) It's like like people that have a racist attitude towards black people or something you want those people to stop thinking that way. In the same way, we want people to stop having misconceptions about depression or Mm -hmm. to minimize what it's like. I can imagine it'd be frustrating.
1: Yeah, this might be a little too strong of a comparison, but it's almost like I don't have the privilege of knowing what it's like to not live with depression or to live without depression.
0: I mean, if you're saying that's the strong statement, no, no, that's a a well-known literature uh, topic is to suffer from a mental illness like depression, if you want to call it mental illness, is absolutely a lack of a privilege. Yeah, people. true. People that don't have depression are absolutely more privileged because now, you know, not only is it easier to live life without depression... But you don't have to, as a non-depressed person, you don't have to deal with the fact that no one gets you. Right. <laughs> you don't have to deal with the fact that you sometimes can't even go to work because of it. Right. And maybe need a day off, but of course they don't have that. So there are systems of power that don't even acknowledge it. Yeah. Sometimes medical insurance doesn't even co- compensate for for mental health services. hmm or they force you to see particular people or they make you have a big copay or something. Right. And so you're absolutely disadvantaged if you have yeah. depression at, in the same way that you're disadvantaged if you are in a wheelchair or if you're a black person or sure. if you're a woman or if you don't speak native English, you know, so right. in America. So, yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. I knew that. I in. I'm taking internalized depression. Good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to be too nice. No. I would like to help Everyone understand,
0: and you're frustrated because it's hard to make everyone understand. Yeah, yeah, and but you're trying. You're on this podcast one, yes. Two, you have your blog. Tell us about your blog.
1: So my blog has sadly been um, neglected a little bit since I started school, but um, it's silentretreat.wordpress.com, I believe. It's kind of a mixture of. I, initially, I started it to post like poetry and music and all this stuff, and then when I decided to come out as a depressed person, I started journaling and sharing, you know, poetry and stuff from, you know, since I was a teenager, when I started feeling depressed, I don't know, it just felt really good to kind of put it all out there. Um, And I sent it out to friends and family, and actually got really great responses from people who were appreciative. And
0: you sent it to your family.
1: I did. Yes.
0: Interesting, because it's basically kind of like a journal, right? Mm-hmm. How did they respond to that?
1: Um, really well. Uh, my dad, especially. Um, so we've growing up, we've had a strained relationship. He's been distant, and um, so that that has always been difficult. Um, and he's he's a man of few words and they're usually not having to do with emotion. So, um Is he Asian? He's not. Oh. My mom is. Oh,
0: he's the white one. He's
1: the white one. <laughs> Grew up in West Seattle. Um we didn't have a very close relationship, not a lot of communication going on. You know, he didn't know about about a lot of my experiences with depression. In fact, he didn't think that it actually he didn't think it was a valid thing that existed. He was of the, the thinking that it's all in your head, you know, just put it out of your mind, pull, you know, pull up your bootstraps. It's totally fine. It was kind of scary putting myself out there and sharing it, but I just felt so strongly about it. And I kind of was at a point where I'm like, God, this sucks. I'm tired of this. Like, this is what I'm dealing with. And this is what people deal with, you know. But over time, I can't remember exactly how. I know it wasn't didn't come directly from my dad, but someone was telling me about my dad's reaction to it. That's a really bad story, because I don't remember it. But just to say that it touched him in a way. Um, And he actually fell into a depression last year, out of nowhere. I mean, it was just kind of a surreal experience all around. So now he definitely understands and appreciates and respects what it's like.
0: You know, you're getting older. You're losing certain functions of your body, or you might lose certain identities. Like you're no longer ambitious about your career, and you wonder what's the point, or what what have I done with my life, or where am I going, or I'm going to die soon, or
1: right, or my friends are you know yeah, (laughs) so many huge changes,
0: lots of losses, yeah. Naturally, as you the older you get, the more people you've lost, the more pets honestly you've mm-hmm. lost in your life well as you talk about it's interesting because and you were saying this earlier that it's almost like the coming out process mm-hmm. and i don't think i've ever thought of depression in that way that because we're so social as animals when we have an experience like this it'll, it'll naturally have a pretty significant social element to it that it's not just you reflecting on yourself and discovering yourself it's like well when do i break this to people and, and how do i Live with this with people. Right? How much do I want to tell people about it? Right? How can I get support? How can I make a difference? How How can I make me? You know, one of the things that we do when we have suffering to find wellness is to find meaning. Right? So Mm -hmm. if you've been raped, for instance, there's a lot of horrible suffering that occurs after rape. But one of the things that a lot of rape Survivors will do is they will become an activist or mm-hmm. they 'll have a blog or they'll you know be a, become a counselor and talk with you know rape victims and in the same way this is what you're doing it's this it's this loss it's this difficulty it's this suffering, but through helping others and getting the word out and maybe even eventually count well as a counselor, you definitely will eventually therapize a lot of people that are depressed mm-hmm. You are potentially finding meaning through this difficulty.
1: Yeah. I mean, going back to just talking about my dad's experience, my mom was saying how thankful that she was that I could be there for him. Um, You know, we actually our relationship changed pretty significantly um, as a result because all of a sudden, he was coming to me and really he was making himself really vulnerable and asking me questions about my experience and like allowing me to support him um, in whatever way I could. Um, and so I just remember my mom saying, you know, like, see, you know, you're a fighter and you've had some really difficult times, but you can be there for people and you've been able to be there for your dad and... I don't like that he went through that experience, but I really appreciate that I could be there for him in that way.
0: Right. And because you had done so much work prior to that, and because you had put yourself out there and come out of the closet, it created this unknown opportunity that you didn't know prior to the opportunity happening for you and your dad to deepen your relationship and you to have the benefit of of helping him. Mm -hmm. feels good to help him, I'm guessing. Yeah. And so, you know, good for you. And, yeah, and a, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of strength in that.
2: Yeah, know? thanks.
0: Um, you mentioned internalized oppression class. Tell me about yes. that. Uh, I'll give a little preamble. It's a famous class at Antioch that was started by my colleague, Jerry Saltzman. There's four of us marriage and family therapist professors, and he's one of them. And a while back, he started this elective course called Internalized Oppression, and he just to set the stage for him. He's I think he's like seventy six now or seventy five, and everyone loves him. And he's always got a big smile on his he face. He has one of
1: the best smiles in the world. Yeah,
0: and he's nice to everybody. And he's he's always walking around with flowers from his garden. And at 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 faculty retreats, he likes to sing songs and dance. He makes us all sing songs and dance. And yeah, and everyone loves him. And incidentally, I keep track of outcomes at Antioch in terms of uh, student satisfaction of professors. And he is consistently one of the, if not the most highest rated professor in all of Antioch. Wow. So. Which is saying a lot. I mean, there's hundreds of professors, you know. So so he started this, this elective. And, and at first, I think it was just something like once a year or something, you know, because these sorts of electives don't usually have as many people that sign up for it. But eventually, it became, just through word of mouth, mm-hmm. the elective to take in the ma- – and, and in Marriage and Family Therapy, you really – there's only a, a couple elective spots that you can even fill. Yeah. And this class is always full – And what eventually it did was it eliminated him from teaching any other class.
1: Oh, really? I (laughs) didn't know that.
0: Yeah. So because (laughs) we as professors can only teach so many classes a year. And so he's good at teaching a lot of classes. But because he teaches this every quarter and because I believe – that's the best place for him to be. I mean, he, he yeah. cause we were talking about, it, it's like he could easily teach these other classes, but that would mean he couldn't teach internalized oppression. And I was like, look, people value internalized oppression so much that, you know, we can find other people to teach these other classes, but internalized oppression is only taught by him. <laughs> He's yeah. the only one who teaches that class. Wow. And so much about that class is about him, right? It's not just the curriculum. It's about yeah. who he is as a human His being. His
1: experience.
0: And the vibe, as a human
1: and as a therapist, and
0: the vibe he has, right? Yeah. I mean, imagine another professor teaching that class; it would be completely different. And so, so um, tell us about your experience in that class. You're at the end of the quarter, yes. so I'm guessing you've you've the shits already hit the fan.
1: It has. The fan has been on high speed. So essentially, internalized depression. Um, well, first of all, there's like a pre-class that you need to go to to talk about how the course is going to be and to really decide, like, given what you know about this class and how it's going to be like really, really, really real, (laughs) you're going to, what does he He said, you're going to get, your mind is going to be blown, you know, are you sure you want to keep going?
0: Right. So no other class has this, as far as I know, where you have an introductory meeting before the class begins to make sure that you understand what's going to happen in the class. Yeah. And he, to my understanding, also gets people to agree to, if if they want to, to participate in a real way throughout the quarter and that they can't be a silent student mm-hmm. and they can't be, they have to invest themselves in the process.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: There's going to be a lot of emotion and there's going to be a lot of tears and a lot of laughter and you can't be a you can't sit back because it'll actually harm the process you'll yeah if you're one of those people that likes to be quiet and safe which is fine but don't take this class because if you do you'll actually potentially hurt someone's feelings because they're going to put themselves out there and you're going to drag it down that that's the kind of preamble he has right
1: Yeah. And by by electing to be in the class, you're saying I'm willing to bear my soul. Like, I know that that's a part of the process and it is a process and you have to be part of it, you know, Um, because you're looking at um, one one aspect or one I target call it a target identity usually like a minority identity uh, or oppressed identity that you specifically want to look at and address in the course, they may as well put Kleenex on like on the bottom of the list in the syllabus of like required reading and then Kleenex, you know, um, it's always circling the class um, in a very good way. For most of the quarter, it's a lot of observing Jerry um, Saltzman, sort of in session with your classmates one-on-one, displaying different sorts of therapeutic techniques. It's yeah, it's an amazing experience. I really I personally think it should be required. but yeah, I mean it, it, it's some heavy deep work, if anyone's interested in, in Antioch multicultural perspectives as a prereq for the course so that you kind of get an idea of what you're going to be looking at
0: right in multicultural perspectives which you take usually in your second quarter almost always it's where you not only read about theory regarding multicultural perspectives and diversity and racism and these kinds of things but you also have a fair amount of journaling and thinking about how you what your culture. Is What your identities are, your history regarding that, your own prejudices, your own racisms, your own sexisms. And it's a a beginning to what can happen in internalized oppression where you will take a a concentrated amount of time to think about how you've internalized Mm -hmm. the oppression of society. That's why it's called internalized oppression. So if you're a woman, you have internalized the oppression of women. Right. That has gotten under your skin. You've experienced it in your family and society and in the media and – in relationships, and so you've internalized these ideas that women are lesser, and that they're mm-hmm. stupid, and that they don't have power, and that they shouldn't talk. and right. And so, in this class, Jerry will talk in depth with you, not mm-hmm. just as a lecture, yeah. but sit you down and say, "We're going to talk you and me right. about your internalized depression regarding what What would you like to talk about?" And as students, so well, I'm I'm working on my Internalize sexism as a woman. Okay, well, tell me about where did that come from? How does that make you feel? You know, what kind of implications does it have? And a lot of times, it seems like, oh, well, in a circumstance like that, you would say, you know, as a woman, you, you know, you, typically, you would say, well, I'm a woman, and I've been, a, I've been oppressed in my life and I've internalized that and I'm not going to stand for it anymore but often what happens is people still exist in their oppression they, they they haven't gotten to a point of resolution yet as if you ever really do but but you'll you'll hear people say things like well you know I certainly I've internalized the oppression and sexism but in some ways I kind of deserve it because I've made so many mistakes in my life you know those right. those kinds of statements and so you want to look at that a little right. bit and say well like well is that is that a Is that a helpful way to think or or have you internalized that?
1: Yeah. So, you know, that's part of what's really um, great about the process is you're watching, but Jerry also is, you know, will address the class because it's still a class and ask questions like, you you know, what kind of technique do you think or what do you think, what what is the core clinical issue? So what do you think is at the core of what's going on here? Um, So it's still very engaging in that way. I have so many quotes of things that he said in class that is just always so amazing. And one thing that he was talking about was how we like to protect our distress or distresses like to protect themselves. But really what we're doing, kind of what you were saying to where we sort of normalize our internalized oppression and kind of become complacent to that oppression and right
0: it's it becomes internalized meaning that it's now us right the society once said women are lesser now i'm saying women are lesser i'm not saying that statement because that's a ridiculous statement but i embody that because that's reality because that's reality women are lesser they're, right. not, they're not as good as things. They're weaker. They need more help with things. Their thoughts are not as intelligent. They don't know what they're doing. Right. You know, and and I'm not going to say those statements because they're ridiculous. But as I experience women and as, as women experience themselves, it's through that lens, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And I see this happen all the time. And, and it just it, it always just kind of irks me is in meetings with colleagues you know, a man speaks and, and everyone listens Yeah. and the man speaks with authority. And I have to say, as a privileged male myself, I embody that. I mean, look at me, I'm a podcaster and I'm <laughs> yammering on forever. You know what I mean? And then in the meetings, women will say things and they'll just, it'll just feel different, you know, yeah. and it, it has a, a less authority or something. And and it really, um, breaks my heart to some extent, you Yeah. Know? cause it's like, why, why is this happening? <laughs>
1: it stinks. Yeah. It's like what we talk about it as being systemic. It's like, yeah, In the system, it's ingrained, it's become acceptable and the norm. Right. But it's not right.
0: So are you done with the class now? Uh,
1: Next Friday is the last class. We're going to have a potluck.
0: What stage is everyone right now? Is it full Kleenex stage right now? (laughs) Are we at DEFCON I think we're at...
1: We're possibly on our third box of Kleenex. <laughs> Definitely second. I don't know. Um, actually, it's interesting. So we have one more. Um, tomorrow is the last class where we have the demonstrations where Jerry is working one-on-one um, with people. And um, my demonstration was last week. And I will just say that it ended up with me standing up, holding on to Jerry like, holding on to him bawling my eyes out onto his sweater you know um, and he just has a way of just getting right to the core of things within five minutes I'm not kidding you um, but so just to say in answer to your question one of the uh, one of my classmates who was there and was watching the demonstrations there were three she was saying how she finally... Was getting the whole process like she was finally beginning to understand just the whole process from the client's point of view as a therapist, the kinds of relationships that I've built with my classmates and with Jerry and our, our co-teacher is unlike any other. I mean, this is kind of like a once in a lifetime. It feels like a once in a lifetime sort of opportunity to connect with people and really just expose yourself and throw salt into you know, your wounds. I don't mean that in a bad way.
0: I've experienced that in family of origin class because that mm. can also be quite bonding and yes. salt into woundy feeling. And also in my case consultation class, which students take when they're at their internship and people take that for sometimes 15 months are off, most often it's a 15 month class you know it's five quarters sometimes six sometimes seven quarters and so and it's only eight students sometimes less mm-hmm. and so you really get to know each other quite well and are go through your life's ups and downs together and go through all your insecurities together and support each other and so certainly experience that and 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 feel like that's when a lot of the magic of getting a master's in therapy is happening. You know, we can learn stuff and read books, and that's great. And we can hear lectures, and we can follow PowerPoints, and we can take notes, and we can write a paper. And these are all extremely important things in academia. As a professor, I am 100% behind them. But when you involve yourself as a professor and as a student transformations can happen. Mm-hmm. You're not just learning stuff, you're actually changing who you are as a person and it, when you're a therapist that's necessary. Yeah. You can't just be static as a as a human being through your graduate program and you have to look at yourself. You have to think about how you interact with people. You have to review your difficult life experiences, and look at how that will affect how you approach people. Because if therapy—and I say this all the time—if if, if therapy was all about CBT and all about like problem solving, mm. they wouldn't need us. Yeah, you could watch Doctor Phil, or 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 you got do friends
1: a, for that, or
0: friends for that, or <laughs> or, or honestly. Uh, use a computer program. Sure. Computer program, they, they have computer programs that can walk you through CBT just as well as a human. According to research, they, there's...
1: I don't believe it.
0: There's computerized, <laughs> computerized cognitive behavioral therapy programs that, that, I mean, they make them pretty slick, you know, they, they, and the nice thing about these computerized things is that they will be with you all the time, right? So you, yeah. you can have an app on your phone. Again, according to research, it's just as effective in reducing depression and anxiety and this sort of thing. But the thing that we can, what we can add, which is even more effective than a lot of the things that even CBT can be effective for is the relationship, mm-hmm. is how we come across the people, the vibe that our clients get from us. Do clients feel that we understand them?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Do clients? clients feel that we have positive regard for them do, do our clients feel like we care about right. them and that has an incredible effect on anyone on anyone let alone client or otherwise you know if i, I, I like to tell my i i <laughs> i'm gonna go on a little tangent here do it uh, most mft students are women and as a male i find it interesting in how anti-stereotype this is countered a stereotype this is in that I am often telling my students to have more empathy. Uh, there's something, not that they don't have empathy, mm-hmm. but I think, We've created, and I think in their internships, they're not encouraged to do it or something. There's not a lot of talk or emphasis on just empathizing with people and Mm. just phenomenologically being interested in someone's experience. Yeah. It's seen as something like, well, yeah, I was just providing empathy. I didn't actually help them at all. I just... I just <laughs> I just listened.
1: Oh that empathy thing.
0: Yeah, whenever I hear I just listened or in play with children they say, "Well, I just played with the kid." And I'm like, "You just What are you talking about? You just. That's not just That's the best." Yeah. You know, like forget about skills. Those are skills are great. This is what we can provide as human beings. Mm-hmm. And in order to provide that, in my experience, we all have to at, at throughout our career look at ourselves and have these crying moments into Jerry's sweatered shoulder. (laughs) We have to have those. Otherwise, our empathy becomes blocked. Our ability to sit with someone Mm -hmm. becomes compromised. Am I making any sense? Yeah,
1: definitely. I'm rambling. No, you're not. Okay. You're bringing up- Well,
0: ramble over, by the (laughs) way.
1: (laughs) My turn. So I'll throw out another quote of Jerry's. He said in one class, we are, th- we're humans first and therapists second, you know, so like what we were, what you were just talking about, um, we're humans. And so we're going to have those internal reactions. We're going to feel things. The things that your clients say are going to remind you of things in your personal life and in possibly be provocative, provocative emotionally. So, and that's one thing that um, clients, I mean, even as, you know, before I started going to school, I didn't think about the fact that there's a lot of internal work that you have to do as a therapist, mm. because when you go in to talk to a therapist, you're talking to a human being, you know, they have skills, they have knowledge, but there's all this stuff going on, you know, inside of them. And so a big part of the work that I'm finding um, to become a counselor is... To look at your prejudices, mm. look at what's triggering you, you know, look at the thing that happened when I was two years old was really traumatizing and look how it's like affected me throughout my life and I still carry it with me. And how is that going to keep me from being able to listen to this client? You know what I mean? Like right. my ramble is not as long as yours, but, I got, <laughs> but it was making sense. know.
0: <laughs> shorter rambles are better. <laughs> yeah. A thing that I often tell my students is... Before you were a therapist, you could be a regular human. Be, uh, you know, when you enter graduate school, you can no longer be a normal person in that you have to look at yourself a lot. Oh yeah, and you have to question yourself a lot. You know, mm-hmm. if you're a regular human and you meet someone at the store and they kind of irk you, you can just be irked, and you can go home and you can complain about the irksome cashier. Mm-hmm. But if you're a therapist, that's you can't do that anymore. Oh, I mean, you gosh. can do it at the you can do it at the Safeway or at the grocery store if you want to, but with your clients, you can't do that. If if you're if your ther- if your client irks you, you can't just go, "Well, I'm irked." Right. You have to go, "Interesting. Why am I irked?" Right. Is that is it because they're a different gender? Is it because they're touching on something in my life? Is it just that they're irksome? Mm -hmm. What's going on here? You can't just simply live your life. Mm -hmm. You, You have to reflect. And so, yeah, it's along the lines of what you're saying. So getting back to depression, what else would you like to talk about regarding depression? Anything?
1: You know, we were talking earlier about kind of my coming out. I encourage people to do that. Being able to go and hang out with my friends and get comfortable with talking about something that... I've been carrying around with me um, and has really been holding me back from a lot of things to be able to share that in a way that i didn't feel ashamed has been huge the more i talked about it the more kind of normal i felt mm. in a way you know and i could kind of own my experience in a different way mm. um, and it just became more manageable to me and i think a big part of talking about it is that other people have stories too, and they have things to say, and they want to talk about it.
0: Yeah, I think what you're doing is great. I'm sure it's helping a lot of people. And as a therapist, I'm sure you'll be able to help a lot of people as well, because you understand it so well. I'm curious, and you don't have to answer this, but how your depression manifests currently? Like, what's that experience like?
1: Yeah, like, I'll go through phases two or three days of not taking a shower staying at home all day snuggling with my cat that (laughs) much more than i usually do um and sleeping a lot because because i just feel exhausted it's very much a physical thing okay but also my anxiety ramps up and so i just kind of want to curl into a ball and the easiest way to deal with those feelings is to just sleep and not deal with them.
0: Right. So you don't shower because you just don't feel like what's the point or you yeah. just lack the motivation? Like
1: Lack the motivation. It just, I don't know, it just doesn't make sense to get up and shower. Yeah, That's what it feels like.
0: If you've never been depressed, it's hard to identify with this. It's like, well, why would you not shower? I mean, yeah. if it's not like you didn't want to shower. right? You might've had the thought like, oh, I should shower. But when you're depressed, it's just like you, you can't do the sequence of thoughts and behaviors to actually go do it. Right. You might want to be clean and you might think, oh, that'd be good for me. Right. But for some reason, getting up and doing it, it, it just can't happen unless yeah. someone like forced you to do it or something, you know? Right. And that, if you've been depressed, you totally know what that's like. And mm-hmm. if you've never been depressed, you're like, well, why don't you just do it? That doesn't
1: make sense. It's right. like an automatic thing. Yeah. You get up and you brush your teeth and you take a shower. Right.
0: I mean, the way that I like to think about it, it's it's like to shower in that moment, you have to believe that life is worth living and that life is good or that there's something good that's going to happen as a result of that.
1: Or even not on that grand of a scale, but like, I have shit to do today, right. you know?
0: I'm going to get it done. Right. I, I've, I feel... I have the energy and the capacity to get shit done today. Right. And if you don't feel that way, if you're like, I'm not going to get anything done, I don't want to do anything. Mm-hmm. I, I don't. I, I have five things I have to do today, but I don't even want to do them. Yeah. So why start? Why why shower if I'm not even going to do? You know, I'll just shower and go back to bed. What's the point? Right. You know what I mean.
1: Then I'll have to wash those clothes, and then right. Actually, your thinking doesn't even go that far down.
0: Yeah, and I think and tell me if this is also part of it. It it almost feels like kind of like recharging of the battery to just sort of cocoon yeah. cocoon yourself. You know. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's almost like. You know, if you're sick, for instance, you just you just want to lay there and recoup. Yeah. So when you say your anxiety comes about, what how does that manifest?
1: Well, so going back to CBT, it's this vicious cycle. So I have a tendency to procrastinate, which is not good for people who are depressed because it just kind of perpetuates that process. But my anxiety usually stems like the stress around getting things done. So it's been an interesting journey of balancing taking care of myself and not feeling ashamed or giving myself a hard time for taking those two days um, to rest because I need to give myself that sometimes. Because another thing that happens is if you kind of hide away for a few days, you're going to have to wake up someday and be like, OK, I really need to get stuff done, mm. you know, and you could possibly wake up in, uh, you know, anxiety that's neck deep instead of like up to your shins. You know, that's definitely kind of a seesaw thing that I've been dealing with for a few years. Um, but I'll plug my CBT class like it has really helped me with you know, stopping that procrastination process. Um, And so it becomes more manageable and easier for me to say, like, hey, you know what? I know I can get this done. I know what's coming. And I've taken care of what I need to take care of for now. And I feel good about that. And now I'm just going to, like, hang out, you know, Mm -hmm. and sleep. Mm -hmm. So,
0: Yeah, just incidentally, the class at Antioch is called Individual Therapy in the Family System. Mm Mm-hmm. And in, in other words, we're, we have three classes that are core to the family therapy program, and that's individual therapy, family therapy, and couple therapy. And so we teach students how to do individual therapies while considering the family system. Mm-hmm. And in that class, they teach a lot about cognitive behavioral therapy. And so you're saying that the class and your previous therapy mm-hmm. has really helped in that way.
1: Yes, definitely. I mean, a big part of that therapy, and I think, I think therapy in general, is just mindfulness.
0: Being aware Being of,
1: aware yeah. of when those thoughts come up, when those feelings come up, when you're behaving in a way that's not going to be beneficial or doesn't make you feel good.
0: Right. So the anxiety you're talking about is like, oh, crap, I have that paper due next week.
1: Right. What
0: if I fail? What if I never get it done? Yeah. What if I procrastinate until the last minute and then I'm freaking out? Right. Those kinds of thoughts?
1: Yeah. And then those will turn into, how am I going to be a therapist? I can't even get my stuff done.
0: Look at me. I I can't even write a paper. I'm never going to amount to anything.
1: Right. You know, like, can I? And truthfully, I have gone through phases like this since I've started school of really like, you know, at home and my PJs disheveled thinking to myself, (laughs) Oh my gosh, can I really do this? Like. Yeah. yeah. Well,
0: the thing I've said and my listeners have heard it and maybe you've I don't know, how many podcasts have you listened to like just one or no? No,
1: I've 10 maybe. Okay.
0: So maybe you've, you've heard me say this before is that the th- the thing I say to people around your stage is the question I ask is do you believe that you can listen to people? Mm. You do yes yes yes. Then you'll be fine because that's a majority of what therapy is. Yeah, is listening and conveying that you understand what someone's saying.
1: Empathetic listening.
0: Empathetic. Well, yeah, but sometimes when you say empathy, it's like, oh crap, I have to convey empathy. It's like mm-hmm. no, just just listen. Yeah, listening. just just listen well. Pay attention to what someone's saying. They're talking about their day at school, and you're like, oh, tell me more. Oh, I get it. So you were bullied at school today. What what happened? that must have been really hard what you know it's not complicated right. and that itself is a major curative action that you can do it in any relationship let alone a therapeutic one because what happens in graduate school is you're learning all these theories and concepts and research and and all these different ways of being a therapist and it's overwhelming cuz you're like how am i going to do that I, I can't even keep <laughs> i can't keep any of it straight and what i say is can you listen because we don't teach much about empathy and listening because we figure you are good at that already. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Otherwise, you wouldn't have chosen to do this. Right. So, you know, by you know, the way that graduate school teaches, you, you at the end of the day think, I'm going to be terrible. <laughs> because <you're, laughs> we don't test you about empathy. You right. know, imagine if every other paper was about how good of a listener you are, you would have this representative sample of your papers that emphasized your strengths. Mm-hmm. And so if you can listen, and just relax and listen to someone, then you'll be fine. Yeah, all the other stuff is extra to that. Yeah,
1: thanks. So don't Speaking ever. of keeping things in perspective. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, the other thing I like to tell people, which is both kind of disheartening and scary, but I think to some extent helpful is that for the vast majority of people that I know and for myself included, we as therapists don't feel like we know what we're doing until five years after we graduate.
1: I've even heard and had a few uh, professors tell me, "You're well, I've heard that, but also like, really, you're never really going to feel yeah. <laughs> certain because we're what? We're human?
0: Yeah. Well, I can say for myself from years five to 10, maybe 15, there, there was a difference, but, and I definitely feel more confident and more at ease at, you know, how long have I been doing it now? 18 years ish or something. But I definitely felt something around five years. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's probably not five exactly for everybody, but for, for whatever reason, it was exact, exactly that for me in that I remember feeling this sort of change that I realized, oh, I mean, I've been confident to some extent prior to this time, but now I, I finally feel like I'm, I'm good at what I do mm. like in a consistent way. It wasn't like, I think but prior to that time, particularly when you're an intern, you have more days where you feel like you have no idea what you're doing than you have days where you feel <laughs> like you kind of know what you're doing. I
1: cannot wait. Yeah. Like, I honestly can't wait. Yeah. <laughs>
0: And then after I graduated I would have like alternating days like wow I'm a good therapist and the next day I'd be like what am I doing why did I <laughs> why did I do that you know and and that's all normal yeah. and so it that is scary but I think it also puts in perspective where you're at in the process that there's there's no expectation you should know what you're doing yet or feel confident that's mm-hmm. that's an unrealistic expectation. It's a very unique profession in that way.
1: Yeah. I mean, do you think that because, you know, as a therapist, there's so much going on up here in your head. You know, you're so mindful of so many things internally and externally. Yeah. I mean, would you say that it it takes on average five years or however long it takes to sort of meld those two or?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's a hard thing to describe and even communicate about or even know what you're asking. But I, I, yeah, I think it does take a long time because you, for instance, just the topic of countertransference, mm-hmm. okay? There's many different kinds of countertransference, but, you know, like the process of being annoyed with a very aggressive male, let's say. So, you know, the first time you bump into a client that's an aggressive male you have countertransference and you have a certain awareness of it and you have a certain ability to to manage it or be aware of it or to integrate it or you have a, you have a certain ability to do that. Well, imagine doing that 100, 200, 300 times by the time you're at 500, you're yeah. a, you're a lot better at it sure. <laughs> than the first time. Even though the first time you know it's called countertransference, you've consulted, you're you're observing yourself as you're going through it. But to integrate that into the flow of therapy of, and especially for family therapists like us, where we have maybe 10 people in the room, it's not usually that, but you have a lot of people in the room Mm -hmm. and you're thinking about things and and you're thinking about how your body feels and you're thinking about the treatment plan and you're looking at the clock and you're, you know, there's so (laughs) many things to keep track of. Yeah. Yeah. Did I just hear something I need to report to CPS? And, oh, when am I going to do my paperwork? And, oh, like, where you know, there's so many things to be thinking about. It takes a long time through repetition to get used to all those thoughts running through your head. And eventually they just become automatic to some extent. So you can concentrate on things that need concentrating on.
1: Sure. That makes sense. Plus, you're interacting with so many different kinds of people. Yeah. And so every
0: type of person, every type of
1: person, (laughs) yeah,
0: that's another thing I tell my family of origin, my first quarter students, I say, previous to this date, you could avoid 99% of the population because you hate them. (laughs) And you could focus on that 1% that just happens to be your type of person that you enjoy hanging out with. Those days are over, you're going to be intimate. With every kind of hundred, you're gonna you're gonna be intimate with everyone. You're gonna be sitting down across. Think of the one group of people that you hate. You know, and since a lot of therapists are liberals, you know, it's like, well, okay, you're going to have to sit down (laughs) with like ultra religious Republicans that are staunch Fox News people and you're going to have to have compassion for them and empathy and you're going to have to listen to them talk about Fox News and you're not going to talk about that you disagree (laughs) with it and you're going to have to say, I understand what you're saying those days are now beginning.
2: <laughs> wow. Because
0: half of your clients are going to be Republican just by the definition of averages, you know, cuz half of Americans are Republican. So, and when, and I say that the students are just like, ugh because I think for a lot of people they have this romantic vision which is false that they're going to treat their kind of people. Right. You know, they're they're going to be a therapist for people like themselves. And that just is not particularly in the beginning in your career. As you work through your career, you can choose your clients more Easily if you want to. A lot of people don't, but you can if you want. But when you're at your internship, forget about it. You're yeah. at an agency and you're you're seeing every slice of life. I don't know why I'm going on that rant. but um, <laughs> uh, So your blog is called what again?
1: Silent Retreat. If you do a search for that, it'll probably come up with a bunch of like retreat places. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> That are quiet.
1: <laughs> that are quiet, peaceful places. I would Google Silent Retreat and wordpress. Okay. And it should pop up.
0: Great. And you talk about your life and depression and
1: yeah, I would love to hear feedback or if you have a post.
0: Yeah. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I thought it was very interesting when you emailed the idea to me, I thought we've never had a podcast purely on depression, if I remember right. And since it's such a common experience for people that I thought, man, we really need to do this. And I, I think that you helped paint a picture of, of what it's like to have depression. Oh, I had one more question for you. Yeah. So some people would say, so she has depression and anxiety. How is she going to help people? How, you know, if she's depressed and anxious, how is she going to be a therapist?
1: Oh, right. How, how can I deal with it?
0: Well, not only how can you deal with it, but you know, you're broken yourself. How can you fix someone else?
1: Oh, right. Well, first of all, I'm not trying to fix anyone. <laughs> and I'm not broken. Um, Yeah. I mean, like you were saying earlier, I think it just gives me better insight into what the experience is and and I think it also, you know, gives me I wanna fight more for people and myself to be able to, you know, help people avoid those terrible experiences that people are up against when they have depression. So
0: Right. Yeah. The thing the way that I like to look at it is along those lines is if you're depressed. Would you like your therapist to have never been depressed or would you like to have a therapist who's been through depression? Oh, yeah. I'm guessing most depressed people would rather have a therapist that's been depressed and knows what it's like. Right. Uh, All right. Well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there. And please, if you're depressed, get help. And if you are around people that are depressed listen to them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Don't judge them. Don't tell them to look on the bright side. Don't try
1: to problem solve. Don't
0: try to problem solve. Just be a friend. Yeah. Don't feel like you have to fix the problem. Don't Don't feel like you have to...
1: Even say anything.
0: Even say anything. Don't blame yourself for the depression. It's, it's theirs. It's not yours. And do all those things.
1: Yes. Be nice. So